0: You are listening to Season 4 of Future Ecologies.
1: Welcome back. Mendel here, and before we get started, I just wanted to say thanks for your patience. It's been quite a year, and it means a lot to have you with us. This is the last episode of our fourth season, so it's time that we listen to you for a change. We'd love to get to know you better, and find out what you'd like to hear in Season 5. We've already got a number of stories in progress, but your input will help shape how we tell them. So, please fill out our brief listener survey. We'd love to hear from you. Find a link to that survey in the show notes, or click the banner at futureecologies.net. After this episode, our feed will mostly go quiet again for a few months, while we're cooking away in the background. To do that, we're relying on your support to keep making this show, and to keep it completely ad-free. Without our amazing community on Patreon, this podcast simply wouldn't exist. You can meet everyone who supports the show, find out about all the benefits of being one of them, and join in for as little as $1 each month at futureecologies.net slash patrons. And of course, if you're not in a position to support the show with your money, you can still help with your words. You know the drill. Tell a friend, tell a stranger, and please say nice things about us wherever you find podcasts. Okay, now on to this episode. What you're about to hear comes from a gathering on Clahoos, Tlaman, and Hamolco territory, specifically Cortez Island in the spring of 2022. It was a symposium of artists and scholars of all description, assembled to reflect on, discuss, and share their practice. Namely, that at an intersection referred to as geopoetics. The word poem comes to us from the Greek poeine, meaning to make or create, and which would also be borrowed into the word sympoesis, Quoting from Donna Haraway, Sympoesis is a simple word. It means making with. Nothing really makes itself. Nothing is really autopoetic or self-organizing. End quote. In that spirit, what follows is not a perfectly condensed version of those events, nor is it attempting to be. Instead, these many voices have been recontextualized and collaged from where I sit, here, as an uninvited guest on the unceded and shared ancestral territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples into a stream of consciousness on language, art-making, and more-than-human interconnection. The sound isn't perfect, and sometimes you can hear a baby in the room. But hey, that's life. Here we go.
2: In, in the field of environmental education, the anthropomorphism, the charge of anthropomorphism is so sort of a, a dirty word. It's considered a logical fallacy, so that it, it's a formal critique, so that even the content of whatever comes is sort of rendered false. It, so I wonder if you could just talk about your experience with that and, and anthropomorphizing the ocean, but also ecologizing the body and how you contend with that.
3: Yeah, that's a great question and um, it's so funny talking to a room of a lot of poets and artists. <laughs> you know, like As though qualities like this could not be transferred across yes. species, but I think that my short answer to that leveling of that charge of anthropomorphism is always like, why do uh, we think humans felt those things first or had those things first? We learn our feelings I think from the world around us, we learn sensation, we learn interrelationality, we learn communication, we learn language from all of these things. So then to say, you know, to hold all of that stuff close to us and say, no, this belongs to humans, and it's ethically wrong to consider that another kind of being would be tired or be angry or be upset or need a hug is I think even more anthropocentric in a way because it, like it, hogs, it hogs all of those great words and feelings and sensations as though they just belong here. You know, where did we get them from?
4: Something to me that I find really helpful recently, particularly been thinking a lot about, because I've been working with Birdsong for a while, and something that recording gives you access to that just listening without recording um, can't is your ability to slow things down and speed things up. There's this artist called Marcus Coates in the UK, he did this project called Dawn Chorus, where he, he slowed down bird song by specific birds, by um, 20 times and got different people to learn the song 20 times slower. Mm. And then filmed them singing it 20 times slower, and then sped them up 20 times. Mm. Their breath, their head movements, they, they, they become birds in this really uncanny way. Mm. Um, and, and it just it makes this really strong point about this time, this kind of temporal barrier between us and some other living organisms that exist on a different time frame. Mm. And, and once you can slow down or speed things up, you can somewhat close that gap and, and kind of meet in this weird, uncanny way.
5: It's, it's not so much a statement as a question. What is the language of ecology? And there's an issue here with the word environmental versus ecology. People think of the environment is something that's out there and we're going to fix it or we need it or something like that. Ecology is something we're inside of. So, part of what I've experienced in the ecology movement over 50 years is that we just continually get hung up on language and that i 've kind of felt like i 've been searching my whole life for a language that actually speaks ecology and speaks of this uh, undivided whole of which everything is a part. All divisions are arbitrary. We cut up the world to describe it, and someone might say, "Well, I mean, we know the difference between you know a rock and a tree. we know the difference between a a tree in the atmosphere, do we? And we talk about a tree, the soil, and the atmosphere, but none of those three things, tree, soil, or atmosphere, or fungi, exist independently of the others. Mm -hmm. So, when we speak of them, we're approximating. Language is necessary, or useful, let's say. Language is useful so that we can just talk to each other and we can talk to each other about the tree and the soil and the atmosphere when we know that none of those things exist independently.
6: The real subject here is I believe, how the earth means. I just take for granted that the earth means it is so obvious to me that it has never occurred to me that it needed explaining. But I hear a lot of people say that they are engaged in making meaning as if there weren't any until they made some. <laughs> you know, um, I just don't get it, the ground we walked on to get here, the stones that got stuck in the soles of my shoes and the other ones that are big enough to stay in the places and the trees and all the little plants underneath the trees and all the, Little things way up in the trees, they are all meaning incarnate. This building is not meaningless either, but it ain't much compared to what's out there. Uh, And we are meaning incarnate
7: too. You and the world
3: are real together. You're built so that you can understand one another.
8: To our animal flesh, to our creaturely senses, Each thing I encounter is always withholding parts of itself, within itself. And it also is hiding other things behind itself.
0: Their features refuse to cohere into recognizable form.
8: Nothing is ever encountered. All explicit, open, total. For me, that's not a source of frustration. It's a source of delight. It's just the signal that I, anima, animal, animate in my own animal body and inside something much bigger than me in which things dance and play with one another and beckon to me and others withdraw from my attention entirely and hide off
7: explicit
3: what what that word means is unfolded everything has been unfolded well often what that is is to dissect something or to flay
9: it to peel it, to to expose it. A a great deal of biological life must remain implicit or it's dead.
8: And of course a way to gain the bare beginnings of an access to the interior of something without flaying it is to ask and to enter into conversation.
9: Make eye contact.
10: Listen, 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 time, listen,
7: listen, listen,
2: let your water be the guide, let the water decide. Listen. Listen.
11: yourself in the meantime.
12: the world is organized is a function of belief for example here are just a few ways that climate change is understood or portrayed as an apocalyptic threat to humanity as a national security issue as an engineering problem as a social and environmental justice issue as a hoax as a business opportunity as a crisis of capitalism, patriarchy, settler colonialism, racism and or neoliberalism or as an opportunity for radical transformation how climate change is framed then has reverberations for how it is approached or addressed or ignored these framings also often map onto deeper ideologies about human environment relationships expressed through social, political, economic, and land systems. When I think about the climate crisis from a geopoetic standpoint, climate change is about time and materiality. Time, the scales of time in which we must think to understand climate. Materiality, minerals, fossils, plastic bags, the decayed remains of marine life powering our machines, In short, organizations of matter.
3: Scale asks us to measure phenomena in terms of close or far, small or big, more significant or less. And we readily think of scale in terms of things like time or duration, minutes, years, eons. Or in terms of size or space, micro, macro, local, global. It follows that a scale of mattering might map onto these other scales according to things like intensity and heft or sheer numbers. We need to scale our actions up, we say. Just a drop in the ocean is a figure of speech for a reason, after all. But despite our desire for scale to temper the crass leveling effect of analogy, We also recognize another kind of brutality creeping into these scalar logics, where Euclidean geometries assemble to measure and mark and value. And with these metrics comes fungibility of each constituent part. This is what anthropologist Anna Tsing might call the malevolent hegemony of precision nesting an expansionist logic whereby scaling up means that any precisely measurable element can be multiplied without consequence. So here, instead of the violence of analogy or equivalence, we face the violence of quantification and reduction and exchangeability, and neither gives us the tools we need for the kind of scaling up that we seek.
6: Many things in the world are a matter of scale. The sandhill cranes are creatures whose song is within our hearing range and whose bodies are large enough and whose gestures are large enough that we can see them dance. And so if you are lucky enough to hear the sandhill cranes and to watch them dance, you will be changed forever by this experience. But another thing that ought to happen is that it ought to occur to you that just because you can see the sandhill Cranes dance doesn't mean that nothing else dances. What about the bacteria? What about the deer mice? What about the lichens? What about the other things that are outside your range somehow? The things whose voices are too high or too low in pitch for your ears, the things that are too small or too large. For you to see, the Earth, for example.
10: I mean we dance inside ourselves, even when we're still..
0: Nature, and its description into image, whether photo, drawing or painting on plain air, has long been conscripted into the propagation of a historical myth the untouched and glorious earth, primed and waiting for your eyes and yours alone to appreciate, to capture in an image of your own.
6: A name on a map like a contour line or a smudge of green and squiggle of blue can never tell you all you want or need to know.
12: One, note your elevation above sea level. What poems occur here?
6: What is, is what has happened, Hegel says. Who cares what Hegel said? What has happened what happens, is, is what, what is, is what is, is what is
9: timeless, caught in time.
0: 4, And it says that the full reduction of the number is 0. Nine, eight, seven, 4, 6, 5, Four,
1: Dylan, of
0: right, God, seven, six, six, and then, seven, and then you get a seven, small seven, number nine, and then so you get and the In the zero,
13: But what stuck with me was the walk, not the song. I don't remember the song, but the specific walk that I was doing. So then I started playing with this walk all over town. And I had the weirdest thing happen, which was this temporal effect, where I started being, the slower I walked, the sooner I would get places. (laughs) I was working at a restaurant uh, and I had my boss start timing it. until he got super angry. And he, was, he, ref- he stopped, he refused to do it anymore. Like, he really screamed it out, he was really angry. Because it was disturbing <laughs> at a really deep level to his sense, of, his sense of the way things are. And the question that I had was, is time incarcerated? I read and I read and I was like, uh, I can't actually ask this question before I ask this other question, how can we be more intimate with time? I need to first encounter time before I start asking, is it incarcerated? Because there's all these presumptions about what is it and I was doing the NGO thing unconsciously already, making the other the object and then trying to fix it and solve it. So luckily I caught that before I started the project and said, okay, uh, how can we be more intimate with time? And then the second question, is time incarcerated? And if so, how can we help to liberate it? So these Zoom windows, I know, I know it can be offensive to be like, I heard David at, uh, this morning, right, the tone, like, not on Zoom. But it was different. People would sleep, right? There they they were people from all over the world. So as that entire almost, like, 15-hour period would go by... We'd watch the sun. We'd watch the shadows. You'd hear the birds. You'd see the dawn. You'd, people would fall asleep. They'd leave the sound on and the video on and sleeping, right? That's the, it was both the informality and the safety, but also the study of time.
3: We are now all tumbling in the circulations of planetary exhaustion where tiredness is both different and shared. Much has been made of our 24-7 neon-lit late capitalist cultures, the vertigo-inducing speeds of the sixth extinction, the spectacularly swift and tireless resurgence of white supremacy and eco-fascism alongside the never-resting rising heat of the noonday sun. But we have thought perhaps less about what comes after and with the end of this world, the insomniac one, Our bodies can no longer
13: hack it. We fall down, fall apart, exhausted. We need to sleep. And that happened all the time. It was like we were always right on time.
3: This is multi-species symposis at work in the name of flourishing. Although we often speak of sleep in terms of self-care, paying attention to the ocean and its communities remind us that even sleeping the most inward-oriented and perhaps solipsistic of acts is actually about mutual care. Some of the planet's most significant deforestation events have, in fact, occurred underwater. Off the east coast of Tasmania, 95% of the giant kelp forests that once dominated these seas have disappeared in the last few decades. In Western Australia, a particularly hot summer between 2010 and 2013, wiped out a hundred kilometres of kelp forest. These forests are not only magnificent in and for themselves, but have been vital for the formation of habitat on reefs around temperate Australia. They are places for hundreds of other species of plants and animals to rest.
0: A desire for order is the most dangerous dream that is held by the majority of North American citizens. Technically, Even the fascists dream at night. It is our obligation to dream differently.
12: Two, map the quarter-mile radius around your home in a poem. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be destroyed.
3: The world is going to end. Why is the world always fucking ending? Uh,
11: I don't know how to say this, but I feel like sometimes... I've had to observe a lot of like human life loss and precarity so I have a different perspective sometimes about I don't know, I feel like uh, this is it's a weird thing to say but I feel like a lot of a lot of you might be really sad because the you know like things are really fucked up right now. And I guess what I'm going to say to you is that um It's been fucked up for a while. <laughs> and I just like I kind of live with that in my gut sometimes. Just cuz, you know, for some for some of us it's been hundreds of years of uh, incredible terror. And, you know, it's a great luxury to feel in this moment like something's wrong. It's good to be agitated to want to make things be different. When we start to become a little too comfortable with things being out of sort, being unjust, that's where it, it feels like it's, it's a problem. It's like that, that sense of agitation is actually some kind of good fuel, I think.
7: I I struggle between being instrumental and wanting this outcome and also just being unconditional that whatever happens, we still need to do what we can. So, it is late, but it is not too late.
11: Well, here we are today. Still pushing for equal pay, mm-hmm. and these treaty rights don't hold. They're shiny like the Judas gold. Mm-hmm. And the stain of blood still remains—a mother's only son slain. Mm-hmm. And our youth are crying out for more continually being ignored On that day we will be family equal, born and free Dawn will come Night will cease we'll rejoice mindedy for that day we'll work and wait that's when we'll cease to agitate that's
0: when we so every morning the earth turns and day breaks over the horizon and every night we spin away eclipsed by the planet's own great shadow Facing outward and away from the center of our solar system until we're back in the favor of the light. It's not so difficult to miss the sunset.
12: Draw a line. On one side of the line, note observations. On the other side, write responses to those observations. Which is which?
14: I learned to rinse my hands with vinegar before lifting away the thin new mothers that formed on top of the brewed kombucha every two weeks. To tell mold from age spots, and to let go. To forgive myself for letting things turn too sour. The process of fermentation presents itself almost too easily as a metaphor. The way time transforms something bitter into something full of goodness, how the mother turns raw materials into something entirely new while simultaneously replicating itself. Perhaps we can follow in the footsteps of Susan Sontag's argument in Illness as Metaphor, in which she insists that, quote, illness is not a metaphor, and that the most truthful way of regarding illness and the healthiest way of being ill is one most purified of, most resistant to, metaphoric thinking, end quote. Likewise, perhaps the most truthful or even the healthiest way of understanding fermentation is as it is, devoid of metaphor. Rejecting metaphor requires extending our feeling, stretching our empathy towards understanding something not based on its use in relation to human comprehension, but towards attempting to understand it purely for what it is. To understand fermentation as not only a metaphor because of course it can exist both to us as metaphoric and actual is to understand it as a naturally occurring process with which humans are simply collaborators and in understanding this we can realize that this form of non-human life this collection of symbiotic bacteria and yeasts is as vital a form of life as our own existence in the world
12: go with your gut and repeat after me i Am, am mostly, mostly. Microbial,
10: microbial flora. flora.
12: Great,
5: <laughs>
10: how
12: does that feel?
5: When do those molecules of apple become molecules of me? At what point? For me, I start to realize well, you don't need to know that because it's just this constant flow, and that's part of the ecological consciousness as well. That we're not independent isolated beings and even though we have the skin and so forth that, that nothing about us survives or lives without this constant flow of energy food nutrients and all of this from an ecological point of view there are no isolated things and everything is a process and everything is a process it's an interesting question but maybe not that relevant to ask when does the apple become me because it was me before, and it's me after, and I'm, you know, it doesn't matter. And, you know, this sort of ties into this, this whole idea of this expanded self. In human society, there have been many movements which have proposed that we, that we expand the idea of self beyond the, the skin, so we have these social imperatives, And there's a social self, and we're one with our brothers and sisters all over the world, and and we're a family. We certainly bicker like one. (laughs) But this expanded self doesn't stop with the human family, does it? And it doesn't even stop with all sentient beings, because it's it's, it's the soil, and it's the rock, and it's the earth, and it's the atmosphere. Intellectually, we can arrive there, but emotionally and inter relationship-wise, it's very difficult because we keep falling back into our language, which makes things out of all this process.
3: Bodies are not self-sufficient, zipped up in some diverse suit of skin. If imagining the sea as a body, however anthropomorphized, can help us understand its fatigue, what might it mean for us to imagine ourselves, our human bodies of water, as more oceanic? What if we understood ourselves too as whole ecologies made up of component bodies and supporting systems? What if the borders of our sovereign selves were to be a bit dissolved? This is not only an ontological question of what a body is or even what a body can do, it's a question of care. While our exhaustion can teach us something about the uneven distribution of as an index of other inequalities, it can also encourage us to consider multi-species ecologies of sleeplessness and what it will take to help each other get some rest. We need each other. We are nothing without each other. Opening to shared vulnerability, relying on each other, we might help hold each other's fatigue.
8: then the long-range migrations of certain creatures can only be a conundrum. A puzzle we'll try to solve by continually compounding the various internal mechanisms that might somehow, in combination, grant the creature the power to grapple its way across the world. But instead of hypothesizing more metaphorical gadgets, adding further accessories to a crane's or a salmon's internal array of tools, what if we were to allow that the animal's migratory skill arises from a felt rapport between its body and the breathing Earth. That a crane's 3,000-kilometer journey across the span of a continent is propelled by a felt unison between its flexing muscles and the sensitive flesh of this planet, this huge, curved expanse, roiling with air currents and rippling with electromagnetic pulses and so is enacted as much by Earth's vitality as by the bird that flies within it. What if this dynamic alliance between an animal and the animate orb that gives it breath, what, what, what is this? What seasonal tensions and relaxations in the atmosphere, what subtle torsions in the geosphere help to draw half a million cranes so precisely across the continent, what rolling succession or sequence of blossomings helps summon these millions of butterflies across the belly of the land, what alterations in the olfactory medium, what bursts of solar exuberance through the magnetosphere, what attractions and repulsions, for surely Really and truly, these migratory folks are not taking readings from technical instruments or mathematically calculating angles. They are riding waves of sensation, responding attentively to allurements and gestures in the topological manifold, reverberating subtle expressions that reach them from afar. These beings are dancing not with themselves, but with the animate rondur of the earth. They're wider flesh meeting between oneself, one's creaturely body, and the vast body of the land. So perhaps it'd be useful to consider the large collective migrations of various creatures as active expressions of the earth itself, to consider them as slow gestures of a living geology improvisational experiments that gradually stabilized into habits now necessary to the ongoing metabolism of the sphere. For truly are not these cyclical pilgrimages, these huge creaturely hegiras, also pulsations within the broad body of the earth? Are they not ways that divergent places or ecosystems communicate with one another, trading vital qualities essential to their continued flourishing Think again, then, of the salmon, this gift born of the rocky gravels and melting glaciers. Above here, nurtured by colossal cedars and tumbled trunks decked with ferns, fungi, and moss, an aquatic muscled energy strengthening itself in the mossed and forested mountains until it's ready to be released into the broad ocean. Pouring seaward, it adds itself to that voluminous cauldron of currents spiraling in huge gyres, shaded by algal blooms and charged by faint glissandos of whale song. Until, grown large with the sea's abundance, this ocean-infused life flows back up the rivers and tributaries and spreads out into the wooded valleys, gifting the hollows and the needled highlands with new minerals and nutrients, feeding bears and osprey and eagles, ensuring that the glinting gift will be reborn afresh from the lump of luminous eggs stashed under a layer of pebbles. This circulation, this systole and diastole, is one of the surest signs that this Earth is alive, a rhythmic pulse of silvery, glacier-fed brilliance pouring through various arteries into the wide body of the ocean, circulating and growing there only to return by various veins to the beating heart of the forest, gravid with new life.
12: Go to a different elevation. What poems occur here?
11: I'm always kind of like, interested in, like, who's not in the room, I guess I, th- I, w- I think about that, like, is this the space where my grandmother would be like, yeah, this is where I should be? And like, not just my grandmother, but like, so many of the people that I grew up with, who didn't have the, the luxury of particular kinds of education or particular kinds of experience, And are they actually less equipped to be able to uh, provide solutions to some of the challenges that we're facing? Is there a kind of wisdom or brilliance that is overlooked? The mundane creativity that's practiced by poor folks, by women often, and how that sits inside inside of here.
13: People who would say to me over and over again, I don't belong anywhere, I hate groups, I don't join groups, I won't go to school, I can't go to school. Uh, a lot of neurodivergence, a lot of children coming and feeling welcome to speak and speak their mind and be taken seriously, it just really meant a lot, like this place where people would continuously name, I don't belong, I don't feel belonging and I come here. And this, here, there was no here.
11: There really is no way to presuppose what 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 kind of miracle exists inside of each and every person. And when we look and we think we already know what kind of magic exists inside of another, we've lost
14: something.
13: That's what I mean by intercosmological space. These whole like sets of knowledge and could could work together and come to life and we'd play with them.
7: So in Anishinaabe way, we have our stories. We call them the sacred ones, the ones that are uh, informing the world view, the way to learn to view the world. And we call those sacred stories. And those sacred stories morph and form our imagination. And so the stories people us. Anishinaabe, the ones who were lowered here, were gifted with the capacity, for language but the language comes from the place and the place is the sounds the acoustic and then when our language respectfully fits the place and the place is singing it and we're ringing it it's a completely different thing
2: I too was thinking of Dylan Robinson and his citing of Leanne Simpson in terms of Mishnabe internationalism. So thinking of the language as embedded in this web of interspecies international in her terms relations.
7: And then we track the teachings of our relatives. So when we're tracking them, we have to know their names and their stories. And their teachings, given this mythopoetic landscape, what we call the cosmology. And we, we call that way-finding. We're finding the human way, the Anishinaabe way of walking, in this cosmology. And the teachers are our relatives. In our story, in our sacred story, all the teachings that were gifted to the beings, in the seeds of creation. We're also poured into the human and overflowed into the body of the human being, as well as the mind. And so we don't know them only in our heads.
2: And so right across Canada, you hear, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, you hear elders say that the language is the way the land talks to us. That is, in a sense, it's not our language, it's the land's language, but which we have learned in order to... Listen better to what it has to say. So, then, when the language has faded from daily use amongst the people, there could still be a sense in which much of the language is nonetheless embodied relationally in interhuman relations and in interspecies, international relations. And also a way in which even where those relationships themselves, as is usually the case, are also frayed because of the same processes of colonization and capitalism and so on, dispossession. Nonetheless, if relationships can be re-established with the land and a lot of knowledge has been transposed into English and other colonial languages about those practices and the practices themselves are enduring and carried on and passed on, then there's a sense in which the language is also present in those things even though it's not being spoken as the language itself at the moment.
7: Robin Wall Kimmerer says that some of us, us old ones, You know, we walk back along the path where our ancestors left, the broken pieces, the songs, the dances, the words, the ways, the ceremonies. And we pick them up, and we learn how to hold them, to carry them. We put them in our bundle. We have these words, we put them in our bundle and they they travel with us. Like a lens, they help us interpret, they help us to see in ways, that's where we use the phrase wayfinding.
2: I think back to my entry into working with indigenous people and thinking about the languages and my mentor at the time, my first mentor in this area, was a woman called Ruth Norton, who was an elder from Manitoba, from Fort Alexander. And um, at one point, I was doing research on Ruth's behalf for the Assembly of First Nations, and and I had been reading the literature on bilingualism and and so on. At one point, Ruth said to me gently but very firmly, if some of our people don't speak their language, it doesn't mean that the language is still not deeply part of them. Uh, I don't expect you to understand that, I just want you to accept that.
7: So the Haudenosaunee scholar, Dan Longboat, says, how long will it take our imaginations to naturalize here, right? How long will it take to morph so that we can carry the teachings of the beings who are here as our relatives as respectfully as they are given? not interpreted as they
12: are given. Choose a species you know little about but that lives in your ecosystem. Learn everything you can about that species. Then go find the species. Write what happens.
9: You ask me perhaps about the Alcyonarian plumes that tremble in the pure origins of the southern tides. And about the polyp's crystalline construction, you have no doubt considered one more question. Posing it now.
12: Find an urban ecotone. Stand there. Write a poem from the dual space. Walkers are sometimes in flight, have orbits that do not recognize the idiocy of borders. Imagine a rise in sea level.
10: How will that affect your elevation poems? My dears. Burglary has always been the surest way to get the gods to notice and give chase. Language, sunlight, the list goes on. List
12: everything that is natural around you. List everything that is not natural around you.
9: Sky is light, grown over days, everything a coast of open baying, commerce winds, up a bray, coarse grit, shoals, dense, blue green, fluvial strips. And the dark green delta dust, probably spores, <laughs> hung in the air. Black apple fists, fur, fish, and lumber. Gray deciduous claims, heights, all. Logged to stumps. Conklaree as chit 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 chit. Scoops, blue, ponded, hard to boat or hike, you would fly, flap, soar, and dart. So, give me the light
12: of stars that strives to but can't quite reach us, the one whose eyes are struck by the beam of darkness, the wings, blinding forms, beating, piercing all songs, singing, fragile light spiraling from every wood and window. The
10: time now is for pirates and possibly warblers. And if I don't believe it when I say it, sunlight, language, fail me if you must. I know. Eventually, you will. Divinity never forgets what's theirs. The gods gave us healing willingly. We've been trying to return it ever since. Hand waving out front, shooing us away. They just won't take it back. Stand
12: up and put your arms out. The length of your arms is the circle of the poem.
9: We've learned to read the surface like departed fluff and pollen husks. Phantom wings lighten up and fly away, wet and fall into soil in a success of propagation, rest, and wetted loose trailing roots dangle and venture.
8: In the absence of the written page of the book, the land will be the visual mnemonic and it will be speaking stories steadily to us in various sites in the landscape, various powers, potencies, presences.
6: Yeah, sure, the the world, the land is the original page, if you like, and it's not written because it's constantly writing itself and erasing itself and correcting, or at any rate, changing itself.
0: If the phenomena of the sunset is part of the natural, unfeeling world, and I find myself to be as well, then what applies to the sunset must in part apply to me. And if the sunset is beautiful, then the world must be beautiful, and I, at least in part, must be too. (laughs) This revelation is present in viewing any great miracle of the random universe that patiently allows us to exist at the same moment as northern lights or spring. And if looking is a practice of discovery, then the potential to find some similarity between ourselves and the sunset should be enough to sustain some faith in living so go now and watch the setting sun see its colors be devoured by horizons and skylines the sky emptied out there is nothing to prove what gratitude love and grace we might feel in watching the sunset has no recipient to greet it And what good is the fiction of pure individuality when you are loving the world across a chasm between yourself and everything that is possible, the goings-ons of chemicals and rotations, the marks of physics and their indifferent routines? We are so small in the glow of the setting sun. Nothing natural burns purely for our benefit. So love those last dregs of light, and our love is reflected back leading us into the quiet miracle of loving and being loved with nowhere to go but on.
7: And our responsibility, says Leroy Little Bear, our responsibility is to give it back through ceremony, that we're paying attention.
12: Fifteen. Write a poem that takes place over 4.5 billion years. Thanks. The feet
2: are the link between us
9: and the body.
3: Begin there, begin there. The
9: Team
1: This episode was composed with the words and voices of Michael Datura, Astrida Nimanis, Cosmo Sheldrake, Rex Weiler, Robert Bringhurst, Jan Zwicky, David Abram, Megan Janasahamani, Stephen Collis, Eric Mcgrain, Hari Alluri, Nadia Cheney, Caitlin Purcell, Kari McClelland, Rita Wong, Jessica Bebanek, Vicky Kelly, Mark Fedos. Marjorie Wanham and Cecily Nicholson. And with music, by Cosmo Sheldrake, Anne Bourne, Meredith Buck, as arranged by Vanessa Richards, Jonathan Kauchuk, The Time Zone Collective, Emily Millard, Kari McClelland, Ruby Singh, and Nathan Schubert. Field recordings by Julian Fisher, and our theme song by Sunfish, Moon, Light. A huge thank you to Aaron Robinson and Michael DeTura, without whom these conversations would never have taken place. Thanks to Holly Hawk for their generous hospitality and support. Thank you to Juliet Bertoldo, Megan Yanis and Vanessa Richards for the help recording. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to take our survey, and to take care of yourself, too. You'll be hearing from us again soon.